0: Well, Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you that you're welcome to use, and you can find it on page 1086, 1086. So we're doing just a a few short messages. Typically, if you're visiting us, we walk through books of the Bible or at least large sections. We're doing a, a few messages that are kind of a little different here at Christmas, I'll explain more about it here in a minute once we're in the sermon. But this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, looking at verses 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, on Friday... January 12th, 2007, a most unusual thing happened. At a metro station in the heart of Washington, D.C., a young, ordinary-looking man in jeans, t-shirt, and a baseball cap opened up his case and began to play his violin for cash. Just a typical busker in the subway station. And over the next 45 minutes, this young man played six classical pieces composed by Bach. And during that rush hour time, 1,097 people passed by him. And as the musician played, most people paid him little attention. After all, it's not uncommon to see musicians in a subway station. In fact, in the 45 minutes he played, only six people out of 1,097, stopped and stayed for any length of time. About 20 or so tossed in some money as they continued past. And in that 45 minutes, he collected a, a whopping grand total of $32. When he finished playing and silence took over again, no one even noticed. No one applauded. There wasn't any recognition. Now, what no one knew that morning was that this violinist was Joshua Bell, a virtuoso and one of the best musicians, perhaps the best violin player in the world. Two days before this event, he had sold out Symphony Hall in Boston where the mediocre seats started at $100. This man has played before kings and presidents, and this morning, He played some of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written on a violin, a Stradivarius worth $3.5 million in a subway station. All of this, you might be asking yourself, why? Well, all of this was part of an experiment done by the Washington Post to see, they wanted to know in an ordinary setting, at an unexpected hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize greatness if it comes when and where we're not looking for it? Sure, they would look for it in the symphony hall, but would they recognize it in the subway station? And the answer was shocking as person after person walked right by this world-famous musician playing some of the greatest works ever composed. Beauty and greatness was right in their midst and they missed it why? well, because they wrongly assumed they knew who this musician was I mean they didn't know his name but they just, he was just another performer I mean they'd seen they'd seen dozens if not hundreds of them sure he he might be have some talent but he's nothing too big I mean why would anyone famous be here if they were any good they wouldn't be in a subway station so Since they didn't recognize him, they didn't stop to listen. They ignored him. Or at best, they tossed him some change, which, knowing who he is, might have been even more insulting. If they had only known who it was that was in front of them, they would have stopped in amazement and hung on every note. But they missed the joy of that morning because they didn't know who this person really was. And as we hear this story, isn't it so similar to the story of Christmas morning? When beauty and greatness showed up in an unexpected place, at an unexpected time, and in an unexpected way. How many people missed the wonder of Jesus in their midst? Because they wrongly assumed, he's nobody special. And for us, I think the story raises more questions Do we do the same thing with Jesus? Do we miss out on enjoying his greatness and his beauty because we wrongly assume, oh, yeah, I know who he is. How often are we simply too busy rushing around that we hurry past the wonder of Jesus right in front of us? Has Jesus become too familiar to us that we've lost our sense of awe Have we grown bored of the baby in the manger? This morning, let me ask you, how do you see Jesus? Is he just background noise you ignore like a musician in a metro station? Do you distractedly toss him a couple bucks without even slowing down as you hurry on with your life? Or does he stop you in your tracks and mesmerize you with the melody of his salvation song. This Christmas, what we want to do is we want to fight against the familiarity. We want to strive against the staleness that so easily creeps into our hearts. And we want to be reminded again just who it is that we've been singing about in our songs. So what we want to do is to behold and worship the Christ of the carols. So what we're going to do is this morning, again this evening, and then next Sunday, we're going to be looking at three passages that point us to the wonder and glory and majesty of Jesus. So for us this morning, as we jump into this mini-series, if you will, the question I want us to ponder together is exactly what we sang a little while ago, and that is, what child is this? Who is this baby born in a manger? Like I said, there's lots of babies born every day. What is it about this child that demands that we not simply pass him by, but fall down and worship the way shepherds and wise men did? And to answer that question, what I want to do is walk through this passage we read in Colossians 1 and quickly highlight 10 things this child is. 10 words to renew our wonder at the Jesus we sing about. So if you go ahead, we're going to walk through these quickly, but I'm going to give you the, and I'll say them each as we go, but I just want to give you a roadmap. And so kids, let me just even give you an encouragement because I know we've got some some new friends in the congregation that aren't usually here. You can listen and try to figure out, I want you to try to remember one word and tell your mommy or your daddy or whoever brought you what your favorite one about Jesus was at lunch today. Okay, so we got 10 of them up here. We're going to see that Jesus is revealer, ruler, maker, point, sustainer, head, beginning, supreme, fullness, and reconciler. And grown-ups, don't think you're off the hook. I want you to memorize and figure out which one which one lands on you in a unique way this morning. And tell each other and tell your child which one stood out to you. So come with me. And let's marvel together at what child this is. The first thing we see about Jesus in our passage here in Colossians is that he's revealer. Revealer. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. See, before Jesus came, the only way that we could know what God is like was by looking at the world he made, or by looking, listening to the words he spoke. But when Jesus came, in him, God made himself most fully known. He doesn't just speak a word, he sends the word. That's why we sing, Jesus is the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. John 1 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So if we want to know what God is like, here's the thing, friends. Is we don't need to try to speculate or imagine what we think he might be like. Oh, I bet God is, is kind of like, no, we don't need to do that. We can know with certainty what he's like by looking at Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In the exact imprint of his nature. As you're making those Christmas cookies with those little cutouts, and you see, like, oh, the shape that's made is the exact imprint of what I put down. And he's saying, that's what Jesus is to God. He's exactly, he's not similar to God, he's not really close to God, he's the exact imprint of God. In Jesus, God reveals his love, his compassion. His justice, His mercy, His wisdom, his, his goodness, and all that He is. In fact, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. But there's a problem. The problem is that just like with that musician in the subway station, many people don't see His glory. They miss it or they ignore it. They walk right past it. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, as the image of God, what Jesus is meant to do is he's meant to reveal and make known the glory of God. So when we look at him, we say, Wow! It says, but Satan has blinded people's eyes so they can't see it. In fact, at one time, the Bible tells us that all of us were blind to the glory seen in Jesus. So what changed? What's the answer to this blindness problem? How do blind people suddenly see glory? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 goes on to tell us. It says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you look at Jesus this Christmas and you see the glory of God, if you look at him and you see what God's really like, it's because of one reason. God has shown in your heart. He opened your eyes. He gave you sight to see what Jesus is revealing. And what is Jesus revealing? He's revealing God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus makes visible the invisible God. That's why he's the revealer. That's the first one. Second, Jesus isn't just the revealer. He's also the ruler. Look back at verse 15. It says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn here is not actually talking about Jesus' birth. It has nothing to do with birth order, per se. It's talking about his status as the one to whom belongs all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. See, back in this time, the firstborn would be the one who would inherit the wealth, the honor, the status of the father. And specifically here, it's talking about the rights of a king's firstborn son to inherit the throne psalm 89 uses firstborn this way when talking about God's plan for David it says and I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth so it's equating the firstborn with the highest of the kings and Colossians 1 is telling us just that that Jesus is the highest of the kings of earth he's the ruler of all creation the one of whom Hebrews 1 says in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. In other words, what child is this? This is Christ the King. The King of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice. The King of kings and a Lord of lords. Friends, there is nobody above Jesus. Nobody ranks higher than him because Jesus is the firstborn king Over everything that exists. Every military and every molecule. Every politician and every particle. Every traffic light. Every conversation. Every job interview. Every car repair. Every pregnancy. Every sickness. Every 401k. Every classroom. Every family gathering. Every, everything. Because he's the firstborn of all creation. And if you're here this morning and you belong to him by faith, do you know, friend, why it's such good news that Jesus is ruler of all? Because the one who rules all things has promised to use his rule to work all things together for your good. He's promised that as the ruler of all, he will not withhold one good thing from you and he will not turn away from doing good to you. This Jesus who loves you and delights in doing what's best for you is the Jesus who rules over every detail of every situation you'll face in your life. That's why it's really good news that Jesus is ruler of all creation. Third, Jesus is maker of all things. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven. And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I love this because what Paul's trying to help us understand here is just try to get your your brains around this. You and I have never seen anything not made by Christ. I I know I used the double negative there, so I'll say it again. I think it's helpful. You and I have never seen anything not made by Christ. Every image that's ever entered your eyeballs of everything was made by him. Think of everything you've ever seen in your life. Think about every object, every face, every scene in nature, everything on a screen, everything you've seen is made by him. And besides that, it says he created lots of things we can't even see. All the invisible. In fact, everything you've ever tasted, everything you've ever touched, everything you've ever smelled, everything you've ever heard, all of it was made by Jesus. Which is why Christmas is mind-bogglingly miraculous. The maker was made man. The creator entered into his own creation. Jesus created the wood his manger was made out of. He created the herald angels who sang the good news to the shepherds. He created the star that the wise men followed. He even created the mother who gave birth to him. This is stupefying. By him, it says, all things were created. Which also means he himself wasn't created. And this is important. In fact, it's something that Christians have confessed for over 1700 years in the Nicene Creed. Where we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Or, as the Apostle John said it, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if it was made, he made it. Jesus is the maker of all things. Fourth, even more than the maker of all things... He's also the point of all things. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. They weren't just created by Jesus, they were created for Jesus. He's the point of all of creation. Everything that exists does so for one purpose, to glorify Jesus. You know how some people at Christmas like we have this phrase and it's been overused. It's, it can be a little off-putting. They're just, they want to remind you that Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for this. Don't forget the reason for the season. And yes, that's true. He is the reason for the season. But you know what? He's the reason for everything. It's all for him. Every atom of creation is built to do one thing. To show the glory and the power and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know why you exist, friends? You exist for Him. Do you want to know why your marriage exists? Or where your job, or your family, or your hobbies, or your bank account? All things were created through Jesus and for Him. I realize this truth can be a rude awakening for us because from the time we're born, we, we naturally assume that all of creation is for us, that everything revolves around us, and, and it should. I mean, think about babies. When they're hungry or they're dirty, they cry because things are not the way they want them to be, and people should jump to it. And get them whatever they need, even though we don't even know what that often is. Are you, are you wet? Are you are you dirty? Do you want a, do you want a bottle? Do you want to bounce? Do you want to lay still? I don't know what you want, but like they're clearly saying, things are not as I want them to be. Come on, big people, help me. And we laugh and we're like, yeah, that's those babies. <laughs> but it doesn't stop as we get older. In fact, in some ways, it gets worse. Look at almost every advertisement out there, right? They're all trying to convince us it's all about you. You deserve this. You're the boss. We're here to make you happy. I'm not going to sing Burger King commercials this week. But, but the idea is you're the point, And we're all like, yes, I am. If you don't believe me, why do you think we get mad when lines take too long? Or when the store doesn't have that item that we wanted? Or when the restaurant messes up our order. Or when other drivers don't drive the way we think they should. Why? Because people aren't living like things revolve around me. In fact, underneath all our impatience and frustration is the belief that everything was created for me. I'm the point. All of us try to steal Jesus' place as the one for whom all things exist. And even though he has every right to wipe us out for that attempted theft, do you know what Jesus did instead? He said, even though everything exists for me, I'm going to give my life for you. He took our place and bore our cross to pay for our sins. And the astonishing news of the gospel is that the one for whom everything exists gave himself for us. So that we could no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. In other words, so that now we can live life the way we're supposed to. Like Jesus is the point of everything. As we keep going here, the wonder just keeps coming. Look back at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here we see Jesus is sustainer sustainer he's the one that keeps everything in existence now most of us don't give a whole lot of thought to this there's no great debates out there like you bring up creation everybody's got a view christian or not if you're not a christian you think i don't think anybody made it if you're a christian you debate about how exactly god made it but nobody's ever arguing about sustaining and yet like we just kind of assume well of course all things yeah Why would things fall apart? Of course they're going to stay together. But have you ever asked, what keeps the universe from disintegrating into chaos? What keeps gravity working? We assume I drop this and it falls, but why? What keeps the molecules in my body connected to one another so that my arm doesn't just float off over there? Here's what. Jesus is moment by moment holding all things together. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, just like God spoke everything into existence through his word, he keeps everything in existence through his word. If Jesus were to stop speaking, We would stop being. That's what it means that He holds all things together. See, God did not just create the world, wind it up, and let it go to run its own course, as some people would have you believe. The Bible tells us He's holding it all together every moment of every day. He's not an absentee landlord. Instead, he's intimately involved in every detail of life. So what does this tell us? What should we learn about this from this truth? It should remind us that all our lives are lived in deep dependence on Jesus. We need him. If Jesus is the one who holds all things together, is it any wonder that life falls apart when we don't keep him at the center? It's because our lives weren't meant to work without Jesus. He not only holds molecules together, he holds marriages together. He holds families together. And when everything else in your life is falling apart around you, he holds us together. So if you're here and you feel like you're coming apart this morning, can I invite you? Look to Jesus. He's the one in whom all things hold together as a sustainer. That brings us to verse 18. Verse 18, there's a shift. I don't know if you've noticed this, but everything so far we've been talking about who Jesus is has been in regard to creation. He reveals God to creation. He rules over creation. He's the maker of creation. He's the point of creation. And he's the sustainer of creation. But now in verse 18, we take a turn. And we begin to see who Jesus is, not just in regard to creation, but in regard to creation new creation. Look at verse 18 to see the first one. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the first thing we we realize when we look at this is that Jesus has a body called the church. This is really important because it reminds us that when Jesus saved us, he didn't save us alone. He saved us into something much bigger than us. First Peter 2 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Revelation says he's freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. See, when we think about what it means to be a Christian, too often all we think about is a personal relationship with Christ. And that is true. Being a Christian is about a personal relationship with Jesus. But it's not only about a personal relationship. Jesus saved you so that you would become part of a people, a people called the church. And here the church is described as a body. And it says this body has a head, and the head is Jesus. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the head of this body called the church? Well, there's a lot we could say, but let me just point out two things. The head is the body's source of life. Think about your body. You can lose lots of different parts of your body. You might lose a finger. You might have a kidney removed. You could even have a leg amputated. You can lose lots of different parts of your body. But if you lose your head, it's all over. In the same way, the church can lose any of its members. And it may hurt a lot. But it will survive. But if a church loses Jesus, it's dead. Why? Because he's the source of life. But not only that, the head has authority over the body. The head head is the part that calls the shots. Do you know what your hand does? Whatever your head tells it to do. The same thing with your foot, your leg. All your body is doing things. Your elbow never says, you know what? I got a plan. I'm going to do this. And your head's like, no, I wouldn't do it. And it just does it anyway. Your head is the one that tells everything in the body what it ought to do because your head has authority. And as long as a church body is healthy, it seeks to obey its head. That's how the church is supposed to work. We always do what Jesus tells us because he is the head of the body, the church. Then in verse 18, it tells us Jesus is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So whenever we see something like the beginning, we should ask the beginning of what. Well, I think it's the beginning of new creation. How is he the beginning? Well, because he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you if you're here regularly, you know we just got done with Ecclesiastes, and one of the messages the preacher gave us over and over again is no matter who we are, one day we're going to die. Death is our great common enemy. And trusting in Jesus doesn't spare us from that reality. But here's the thing. While death still comes for all, for those who are in Christ, we have nothing left to fear. Because Jesus defeated death and took away its sting. In fact, that's why he came. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So how did Jesus do it? How did he overcome death? He took on flesh and blood. He came as a baby in a manger. He lived life as a man just like you and me. The difference was he never sinned. Never disobeyed. In fact, he was the only one in history who didn't deserve to die, and yet he chose to. He chose to die in the place of sinners like you and me who do deserve to die, but then after dying for us, Jesus didn't stay dead. This king conquered the grave and was raised back to life. And do you know why it's such good news that Jesus was resurrected? Look back down there. It says, Jesus is the beginning. The beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Friends, Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection, but he's not the end. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he won't be an only child. Romans 6 says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Romans 8, it says that God promises that jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers that's us so christian Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection and that is why we sing born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth because jesus is the beginning the firstborn from the dead The next thing we see about this Christ of the carols is that he is supreme. Supreme. Look at the rest of verse 18. It says, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does it mean that Jesus is preeminent? It means he's the greatest, the foremost, the best, the finest, the highest. It means he's unsurpassed, unequaled, and unrivaled. In a word, he is supreme in everything. Perhaps no one has said it better than Pastor S.M. Lockridge. He was a Baptist pastor in the 1900s. Here's how he said it. Talking about Jesus, he said, He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. Friends, there is nothing and no one greater than Jesus. He's the best in every conceivable category. And my prayer for myself and for us this Christmas is that we would see and savor his supremacy as the most satisfying reality there is. Because he is preeminent and supreme in everything. Next we see that Jesus is fullness. Fullness. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This this is mind-blowing, that Jesus wasn't merely a man, even a great man. He was and is the God-man. And not half God, half man, but fully God, fully man. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or as it will say later in Colossians, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. As we sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And this is why this is staggering. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God's presence dwelt. That's where you would go to meet with God and to receive forgiveness of sins through sacrifice. But now, he says, there's a new dwelling place of God. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He's the place where we receive forgiveness. He's where we go to meet with God. Because when we go to Jesus, we get God. Unedited, unabridged, undiluted, full strength God. Because Jesus is the fullness of God. And what's even more amazing is that John 1.16 says this about Jesus. From his fullness, we have all received grace grace upon grace. Colossians 2 says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. This is unbelievable. So this morning, let me just ask you, did you come in the doors, are you empty? Did you barely make it through another week dragging yourself through all the challenges and trials and heartaches that life is throwing at you? Did you come in here running on ease spiritually? Friends, the good news is that when we come to Jesus, we come to the fullness of God. And from his fullness, we get filled up. So if you're empty, come to Jesus as the fullness. And that brings us to our last word about who Jesus is. Look at verse 20. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we see that Jesus is reconciler. Notice that he reconciles to himself all things. But well, why do all things need to be reconciled? Because we've all rebelled against God and chosen to live as his enemies instead of his people. And when we rebelled, it wasn't just us. All of creation was broken and cursed. But in his mercy, God didn't just get rid of his enemies. Instead, he reconciled us. He made peace with us. And how did he do it? Through a bloody cross. Friends, that's the only way peace with God comes. Through the bloody cross of Christ. This Jesus that we've been talking about, The one who made everything, sustains everything, rules over everything, and is supreme over everything. That Jesus, the highest of the highs, became the lowest of the lows, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his blood bought our peace with God so that we can say, God and sinners reconciled, and not just us. The cross is where Jesus reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to himself. In other words, he broke the curse of sin, and those who trust in him will one day enjoy reconciled lives and a reconciled creation where Jesus makes all things new. Friends, this is who Jesus is. He's revealer, he's ruler, he's maker, he's the point, he's sustainer, head, beginning, supreme, fullness, and reconciler. So this Christmas, the invitation is, come, all ye faithful. Come, ye joyful and triumphant. Come and behold him. Come, let us adore him. What child is this? This. This is Christ the King. Would you pray with me? God, we adore your son. He is unspeakably great. Lord, we could pile up words and we could pile up books and there wouldn't be room to recount all that he's done or to attribute to him all that he's worthy of. And yet, God, we've seen enough this morning to know that our hearts should be moved to marvel at this Jesus. So would you do that in us, God? We cannot make our hearts feel that. So we ask you to stir us up, to create in us right and good affections. Help us love what is lovely and to admire what is admirable. Namely, help us to behold and worship Jesus your son, our king. We thank you for him and we pray that you would help us this Christmas season to fix our eyes on him. And We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.